everybody, and welcome to a conversation on the National Environmental Policy Act and its effect on infrastructure development in America. My name is Adam White. I'm a professor of law, assistant professor of law at the Scalia Law School, and also the director of the Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the law school. It's my pleasure to host this event, which is organized by the law school's Law and Economics Center. And my own program, the Gray Center, is very uh, grateful to get for the opportunity to play a role in this. The title of the event formally is Do NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, and Other Permitting Requirements Doom Green Energy and Infrastructure Plans? And we're very fortunate to be joined today by two experts on the subject who have studied this both from the outside and from the inside of the process in government. I'll introduce our speakers in just a moment, but first let me introduce the law that we're talking about, the National Environmental Policy Act, which was enacted 50 years ago last year in 1970. It's a very brief statute with a very large impact at times. The statute, which if you want to look it up, is at 42 U.S.C. 4321 in the sections that follow. It's a basic obligation on government to review the reasonably foreseeable significant environmental impacts of the government's own actions and the actions uh, that the government approves, such as the development of a new natural gas pipeline or other federal energy infrastructure projects. Uh, formally, the agencies have to have to create what's called an environmental impact statement, a study of the program's uh, reasonably foreseeable environmental impacts. And they also have to identify not just the potential impacts of a project, but al reasonable alternatives to the project. And so the statute requires two, at least two types of analysis, one at potential impacts and one at potential alternatives. And I'll just note for... Full disclosure, this is an issue I worked on for part of my own legal career years ago at the Baker Botts Law Firm working on energy infrastructure. But enough about me. Let me introduce our two speakers who you all have come to hear from. First, we'll hear from Mario Loyola. Mario is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and recently served in the White House's Council on Environmental Quality, which is the federal agency responsible for promulgating regulations that administer the National Environmental Policy Act. And then we'll hear from Andrew Rosenberg. Andrew is director of the science, sorry, director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And he previously served in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, which is a part of the Department of Commerce, which also has significant responsibilities in the NEPA process. So I'll turn it over first to Mario, and then he'll be followed by Andrew. Mario? Thank you, Adam. Great to be with you all. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Uh, and thanks to uh, the Boyd and Gray Center at uh, George Mason University Law School for putting this together. This is a great event on a very important topic. Um, I'll try to keep my <clears throat> remarks short. I just want to um, highlight uh, uh, an issue that has been receiving increasing attention. <clears throat> there was just yesterday... Um, a, the U.S. Chamber hosted the latest of its Energy Innovators session uh, uh, devoted to this topic. And David Hayes, one of the president's senior, most senior uh, uh, climate advisors, was in attendance and announced that uh, the administration is considering regulations to address some of the very issues that we're going to be talking about today. So um, this is uh, this is timely and it's getting the attention of the administration at the highest levels. 
And it's no surprise. And the reason why it's no surprise is that the administration has articulated uh, extremely ambitious goals for reduction of carbon emissions, uh, especially in the U.S. power sector and the electricity sector. Uh, and uh, attaining those goals is going to require a couple of things that um, that are going to be very difficult to achieve in which um, the uh, proponents of a transition to renewable energy have barely started to discuss yet. Uh, the two main obstacles to achieving the uh, admit the goals of uh, carbon-free electricity generation by 2050 or a carbon-free economy by 2050 and a reduction of 50% of emissions in the electricity sector by 2030. Um, that very ambitious goal faces two major obstacles. One of them is that um, uh, even at the United Nations, uh, the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has urged governments to triple their deployment of nuclear energy in order to achieve this goal. And the reason for that is that uh, renewable sources like wind and solar are too intermittent to serve as baseload generation. And so when you uh, transition from natural gas and coal, which are very reliable as baseload generation, generally speaking, uh, to renewables, you make the electricity grid much more unstable, much more uh, rigid and uh, unable to respond to weather events. We saw some of the results in Texas uh, earlier this year. And so in order to replace the baseload generation with clean energy, uh, it has to be nuclear energy. But of course, you have people uh, among, uh, among the proponents of uh, clean electricity who have hated nuclear power since, you know, since they were protesting against the Vietnam War. And those people are still very committed uh, to the fight against nuclear. And so it's sort of a third rail uh, among uh, Democrats, at least. Uh, and so we'll see how that happens in the in the infrastructure plan that the president released. Uh, there is some mention of nuclear power, but it's advanced research reactors, not a single uh, commercial scale utility scale nuclear reactor is being proposed in the United States right now. Uh, none has been built or very, if, to my knowledge, since the 70s. Virtually none has been built since the 70s. Uh, and the administration has not proposed any deployment of large-scale uh, nuclear energy. The other major problem, which is what we're going to be speaking about more today, is the simple fact that the process for giving permits and uh, environmental re re related environmental reviews under NEPA, as Adam mentioned, uh, for each of these new renewable energy or clean energy power projects is extremely lengthy, extremely costly, extremely unpredictable. And most important of all, the agencies, they consume so much agency resources uh, that uh, they simply, that the agencies simply don't have the bandwidth to process more than a few at a time. Uh, the entire federal government posts maybe 70 or 80 uh, final environmental impact statements under NEPA every year. Uh, the Department of Energy, half of those are forest management plans of the Department of Agriculture. Uh, uh, and so the Department of Interior right now is <clears throat> totally overwhelmed by the effort to process 15 solar energy permit applications. And in order to meet the renewable energy goals, according to studies that I've seen, in order to meet <clears throat> even a reduction of half 
uh, of carbon emissions by 2030, uh, that's going to require the deployment of like a thousand or two thousand utility scale solar projects uh, over the next 10 years. The and I'll just go out on a limb and say that under the current system, that goal is simply a fantasy because you the the process takes four and a half years for a single permit application. Um, we are going to be the Department of Interior uh, may be able to grant permits to uh, you know let's say twenty of these things in the next five years, which then would require several more years uh, to reach construction. And so, if the system works really, really well. Uh, uh, the administration may be able to get to deploy, uh, what would it be, one-tenth uh, or one-twentieth of the solar energy or wind energy that it needs in order to, uh, in order to reach its uh, clean energy goals. And so that's why I characterize this plan as, as simply a fantasy at the moment, because there just is no, there is no discussion of how we're going to get from here to there. Um, the administration is, as we learned yesterday, there's a story in today's news wires that the administration is considering uh, regulations to speed up the permitting of renewable energy projects. <clears throat> but the problem is, and I know this because I was at Council on Envir Environmental Quality at the White House when we were we, we had a concerted effort to speed up the permitting process, uh, which we did as much as possible without being accused without without being accused, uh, and we were accused of gutting NEPA, by the way, even though that process uh, bent over backwards to assemble as much of a bipartisan constituency as possible, uh, given the broad-based uh, consensus on the need for reform. But the main obstacle is that the problems are structural. The problems are uh, statutory. They're in the way that Congress has set up uh, all of these permitting authorities uh, for the various agencies. And so, uh, and, and the fact that courts have expanded the requirements of NEPA to the point where you know agencies can spend years and millions of dollars literally 15 or 20 million dollars of taxpayer money without even taking into account the 100 million dollars that a project proponent might spend uh trying to uh comply with NEPA requirements and uh, after all that effort uh they have no earthly idea if they comply then they won't find out until they get into court because the litigation risk for an environmental impact statement is 100% and so they're going to court and when they get to court, they will find, uh, they're likely to find, actually, the, I think the chances are about 30 or 40 percent that the EIS will be vacated and remanded to the agency because there was some butterfly on top of some hill that they didn't take into account uh, or some intermediate alternative between alternative five and alternative six uh, to the agency action that they didn't take into account. And so, you know, you get a thousand things right, but if you get one thing wrong, you're going back to the drawing board on that environmental impact statement. And as a result, the agencies uh, go out of their way to do bulletproof environmental impact statements. And so there's just, uh, having been there, I can speak with some authority when I say that there's not much that you can do through an executive order or through a regulatory change, uh, because to the extent that you speed up this process, you are dramatically increasing the chances that the environmental impact statement will be vacated by a federal court and remanded back to the agency. And so the only change that can fix the problems of how lo long it takes, how much it costs, uh, how little control project proponents have over the process, how much litigation risk this process entails, 
uh, and the problem of agency bandwidth uh, to process more than a small handful of these permit applications, it's going to require uh, congressional action and a sweeping reform of the permitting process. And we'll see, I think there's an emerging understanding uh, about that uh, as the infrastructure package works its way through Congress. Uh, but of course, any change in this NEPA process will be criticized as uh, gutting our environmental protections. So there's just, you know, all politics are local, and in this case, they're national too. And uh, suffice to say that with the system that we have, the Biden administration's goals of achieving carbon emissions reductions by the year 2030 are, uh, are, are uh, a really tall, a really tall hurdle. So with that, um, I'll be quiet and look forward to Andrew's comments. Well, thanks, Mario. And just a note before Andrew begins, if anybody in the audience would like to submit a question, please do that through the Q&A function of Zoom. I see there's already one question in the queue. Uh, anybody else would like to add theirs during the course of the conversation, feel free to use the Q&A function. Uh, Andrew? Thank you very much, Adam and Mario, um, and certainly the law school and George Mason University for holding this session. Um, so I might as well be clear. I'm sure there were one or two things Mario said that I agree with, but that's probably it. I think those would be the need for agent, better agency bandwidth and more efficiency in working through NEPA. Um, other than that, I don't really think um, we had too much to agree on. Um, I think that NEPA is absolutely essential. Uh, not only for energy projects, but for most other projects. And many of my, um, much of my experience has to do with marine resources, but the issues are the same. Uh, I worked in NOAA, which is both a resource agency, in other words, evaluating um, impacts on resources, but also an action agency because we also permitted various kinds of actions. And um, NEPA is, causes enormous difficulties because it is, um, uh, procedural, and it means that you actually have to describe what you're going to do and what its impacts will be beyond just the enabling statutes, such as the fisheries management law or marine mammal protection or habitat protection or whatever it might be. So one of the things that NEPA does that's so critical is it actually forces agencies to think beyond their primary statutory mandates. Now, contrary to much of the rhetoric state agencies don't really go beyond their statutory mandates in any circumstance um, because you're in court on every issue. So it's not that all of the litigation has to do with NEPA. Most of it doesn't. Um, in most of the areas that I've worked in and many others that I've studied, um, much of the litigation is um, for other statutory purposes and sometimes NEPA. And the reason that it's not always on NEPA is because NEPA is a procedural statute. So if you do the process, um, it doesn't mandate any particular decision. And certainly it wouldn't mandate that you forgot about a butterfly on top of a hill because that might be, if anything, um, related to the Endangered Species Act. And that's where the litigation would be, not necessarily with NEPA. And it's a pretty easy fix if you've actually just ignored some resource. So secondly, let's talk about what else NEPA brings to the process. As Adam said at the beginning, NEPA requires an action agency to consider alternatives. That doesn't happen really in any other circumstance where you have to say, here is an alternative and here's how we analyze what its impacts would be. 
And I can tell you that action agencies and companies hate having to consider alternatives. They just want to do what they want to do. They don't want to consider what the alternatives are. And that can even be minor modifications. The alternative, I've had endless arguments with companies on dredging projects and everything else about trying to move certain requirements by two weeks because of spawning seasons. And that would be impossible. We just absolutely couldn't do that. We can't do that at all. I've had those same arguments with the military. And that's because they want to do what they want to do. And they don't see any reason why they should do anything else. Because, of course, their project is the most important thing in the world in every circumstance and to every uh, action agency and uh, every uh, actor. Um, secondly, that we tend to say that it's environmental impacts and everybody thinks, well, we've got to go out and save the butterflies as in Mario's example. Um, and, uh, or we're going to go out and hug trees and save old growth forests. But actually the environment is the human environment as well as the natural environment. So we are talking about public health. NEPA is essentially a public health, safety and environmental statute. So it is not something for, you know, pristine lands or open lands or endangered species, which have their own very strong statutory protections that are not um, directly connected to NEPA uh, in the requirements. This is about community needs. And as Mar one thing I do agree with uh, what Mario said is politics are local. People have a right to have a voice. And NEPA has a very extensive role in allowing the public to engage on how um, infrastructure is built, how energy infrastructure is built, and so on. And I'm sure that every energy company hates that, because why would they want to have to address public concerns if they don't have to? And that is why, for much of energy infrastructure, there are broad exemptions to NEPA for fossil fuel production. So we have enabled fossil fuel growth um, and exempted it from NEPA. And now we have a question about whether we should provide those same exemptions for renewables. But the requirements of NEPA are a vehicle to try to uh, address long-standing environmental injustice where certain communities are impacted, particularly by infrastructure projects, but not only over and over and over again and are burdened with much of the pollution or construction or other um, public health and safety threats in the country, so-called environmental justice communities. Under NEPA, you can require considering those impacts because that's part of the human environment. And it, and it requires a discussion of what are the costs to the public of a particular action. And there's often a rhetoric that says we only should consider the cost to industry. Well, those aren't the costs. Anything you know, the costs don't go away if this industry doesn't pay to clean up pollution, for example. They're just shifted onto the public. And so NEPA actually does require those so-called impacts, which are really costs, to be considered and discussed in a public arena. And that includes um, the issues around justice and equity. So, yes, it takes time. It could be a lot of time, but an awful lot of that time could be shortened if agencies and companies were far more responsive. I've had circumstances where companies refused to provide information, sometimes for years, and complained about the lengthiness of the process because they couldn't get a permit. 
because they we we couldn't analyze the information that they refused to provide. So yes, there are lengthy parts of the process, but an awful lot of that is applicant recalcitrance, and sometimes that applicant is a federal agency, and sometimes it's a um, private company that federal agent is seeking a federal permit of some kind. I'd also note, of course, that there are state versions of NEPA that take um, uh, that are in place in many states across the country. And I find it ironic that the same voices that, you know, both denied and misinformed and hid information about climate change that put us in a position where we have to move quickly are now saying, oh, well, we don't have time uh, to go through a process to address environmental impacts. Because after all, you know, we lost not only the last four years to act on climate change, but um, a lot more time before that because uh, of reluctance to actually acknowledge the facts. So it is a fact that um, infrastructure projects, including energy infrastructure, have impacts at a community level, at a local level, and certainly um, on both the human and natural environment. And so there are ways to more efficiently work through this process. To do that requires shaking out of old patterns, although the proposals from the Trump administration didn't really do anything to help that, in my view. They put arbitrary timelines and page limits and things like that on the process, which didn't actually change the way the analyses worked. Now, finally, I'm not the person to talk about litigation risk, really, but because um, I'm not a lawyer, I'm a biologist who's more on the side of doing the analysis or or reading and making decisions on the analysis. Um, but, you know, much of the litigation actually is from the private sector. It's usually, again, the rhetoric would be that it's all from, you know, some well-funded environmental group that endlessly litigates. Well, that's actually not the case. It's often, you know, the majority of the litigation for decades has been from the private sector. Um, and so, that is a problem. How you address the judicial review problem is something that you as lawyers can argue about. But I can tell you that in the major NEPA lawsuits that I was engaged in, the judges' questions were fairly straightforward. Tell me how what you are doing addresses the concerns that have been raised and why you have provided the information so that the public can comment adequately on those concerns and on your action. And if you can do that, you can make the decision you want to make. But if you can't describe the impacts in a way that enables the public to comment, then you need to do a better job. The other litigation I've seen is where somebody said, you just concluded there was no significant impact. And it's just hard to believe that there's no significant impact from taking this action. If you hadn't wasted the time trying to show that there was no significant impact, you could have just done the NEPA analysis by now. So it can be accomplished much more quickly. We can all find apocryphal stories where it took a long time, but that is not the norm. So we should go through the process. We should do what we need to do um, to, to evaluate impacts and to have public support. Finally, just a quick comment on a couple of points that Mario made about the obstacles um, the biggest obstacle to renewable energy is not the need for nuclear. Our analyses from Union of Concerned Scientists show that, yes, you need to maintain the existing nuclear facility, but no, build-out is not particularly um, useful because it's not cost-competitive in any sense of the word, and it's, 
and um, it, it's nowhere near cost competitive, uh, even with coal, which is now higher cost than renewables and so on. Um, it, so, you know, a build out of nuclear energy is not, you know, the one of the two major obstacles. And the reason people don't build nuclear plants is because it's unbelievably costly and difficult to do, not because of the regulatory process. Um, there are issues of baseload, but they're also, but the biggest challenge there is actually um, dealing with grid, modernized grid infrastructure and the ability to actually deploy uh, renewables in an effective way. And then there are some storage issues, but a lot of that relates to, to um, uh, grid modernization. And then finally, there are um, issues with permitting. But the alternative to that is to simply say either the heck with it, we won't address climate change, or we won't allow the public to have any input. And neither of those things make any sense. And so it's not clear that you can simply waive um, the requirements, but you could make the process work better. Um, but the, it, it doesn't make sense to, to simply give up because you think the, the, uh, public input is too costly compared to all the other things companies spend money on. Um, or to not address climate change. Those are not options. So it doesn't make uh, any sense to me that we consider um, either of those as possibilities. Thank you. I'm sure I probably irritated everybody in the room, but that's why I'm here. Well, thank you for that, Andrew. Um, and just a reminder, everybody, if you want to submit a question, submit it in the Q&A, not the chat function. I'm not monitoring the chat function. Send your questions to the Q and A. Uh, we have a few minutes uh, carved out for for Mario and Andrew to both follow up a little bit on anything that's been said so far. Uh, Mario, do you have any further thoughts or reactions you want yeah, to add? I'll just, yeah, I'll just say my biggest disagreement with Andrew was his statement that he disagreed with most of what I said. I didn't see too many examples of him actually disagreeing with much of what I said. Uh, and I think that we agree on a lot. Um, I think that NEPA is a very, uh, I agree that NEPA is a very essential statute. It's what, um, you know, like Governor Scott, former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker likes to say that uh, conservatives are not just about limited government, they're about good government. And I think that NEPA, certainly in its inception and the way that it was drawn in the statute, uh, in the statute books is a very good, good government statute. I think that it's a very good thing to require agencies to consider the, uh, signi the significant environmental impacts of the permits that they propose to give, of the projects that they propose to fund, of the federal land management plans that they propose to promulgate. Um, uh, and all of that is, is to the good. Um, but, uh, you know, the problem of litigation is very serious. I think maybe this is the, the biggest point of disagreement with Andrew. Uh, at any given time, half the cases at the D Division of Environment and Natural Resources of the Department of Justice are NEPA cases that are being litigated. Uh, I don't know if it's a majority of them, but a lot of them are uh, environmental advocacy groups challenging the sufficiency of an environmental impact statement. And I think that the majority of NEPA cases are cases challenging uh, the sufficiency of an environmental impact statement as arbitrary and capricious under the administrative and under the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, and so as a result, uh, you know, the, uh, I don't, my perception having been in the government is that agencies don't actually have a lot of flexibility to spend less time on the NEPA process than they're doing right now. 
Uh, I don't think that, uh, I think that everything that they're doing, everything that they require the project proponents to do is driven very much by a concern for all of the ways in which the environmental impact statement might be found insufficient by a court and vacated by a court. I mean, I think that the drive to do a, a bulletproof EIS is the central driver of all of this. And, uh, and the fact that they have no earthly way of knowing if they've complied with the law means that the agency has to make a more or less open-ended commitment of resources and time. Uh, the stories of the process taking a long time are not apocryphal. Uh, the average, uh, the average, the Biden administration knows very well uh, uh, that the average time to complete an EIS is four and a half years. Uh, the average time for a transmission project or a linear project like a road is seven years. And that's to complete that. That's not to issue the permit. That's to complete the review process and decide whether there's going to be a permit or not. Um, and I will agree with Andrew that uh, just saying we're not going to apply NEPA because we're going to worry about climate change is also not, uh, a, not a realistic strategy. I saw, I don't know if it was in the chat or in the Q&A, somebody suggested that we should exempt solar projects from um, solar projects from NEPA or, you know, put them in some very fast track sector wide, uh, maybe general permit scheme uh, where the impacts would be analyzed programmatically for the entire sector. Um, the, I, I happen to think that that's the only realistic way that you're going to get the number of projects permitted that you need to get permitted in order to achieve the administration's clean energy goals. However, I also think that exempting uh, 1,000 or 2,000 utility-scale solar projects from the NEPA process would generate so much local opposition. Because what it, what it means to exempt a project from the NEPA process, essentially, is to cut out those very important voices that Andrew mentioned that are local voices, that are the ones that uh, the scoping process under NEPA depends upon to highlight uh, a lot of the environmental impacts. Actually, those local voices are, the, are oftentimes the ones that bring to the agency's attention what those uh, significant environmental impacts are going to be. And so, uh, you know, you know, 2,000 utility-scale solar projects that are 10,000 acres each, I mean, do, do the math. I mean, this is a significant area. This is like half the state of New Jersey or something. Uh, and uh, those projects are, are uh, uh, a bill that says we're exempting these projects from the NEPA process so that they can get their permits uh, would have a very difficult time finding enough votes to pass in Congress because what those congressmen would be voting for is to cut their local constituents out of being able to voice their concerns over a local project. And so I think the system is very, very, this, this is a very, very hard problem. Simply saying the agencies could do this all more efficiently is definitely not going to solve it. Uh, I, you know, we're, it's an all hands on deck situation. And I think anybody who has ideas should bring them forward because uh, there's nothing very, there's no very obvious solution now. Um, so thank you. And, and thank you, Andrew, for your, uh, for your many areas of agreement with me. Um, yeah, well, I still think we were disagreeing, but. Um, Andrew, anything else you want to add? Yeah. Yeah. Let me just um, quickly say a couple of things. I mean, the numbers are troubling me because if you look at the, the NEPA coalition website, two and a half million projects have been, uh, evaluated um, and completed um, since NEPA was implemented. And so I don't understand how that that complies with, you know, 50 a year, even over the 50-year period. Um, so we've got a numbers um, confusion uh, as far as I'm concerned. 
of course, oil and gas projects do have a, a um, essentially a programmatic permit so that you can move forward with many, many oil and gas projects and who cares what the local community thinks. I don't think that's a good approach. So I don't think that we should replicate it again. But I would note that many of the companies um, that have that, that uh, programmatic permit for oil and gas operations now are saying, okay, now we should also have a program out programmatic opportunity or we should have a streamlined process. So again, that we can maximize, um, you know, how quickly we can build things and really maximize profit and not have to go through these hoops. And so I do think that's a problem. I, I do believe that you can do things quite a bit more efficiently. You can do regional analyses instead of every project doing its own analysis of the affected environment. That's um, been an issue in the oceans. It's a bit an issue on land. I'd also say we're not talking about, you know, all of this being done by solar projects. Um, you know, most of the countries that have made significant strides uh, in moving towards renewables, other than those uh, that have special resources, either for hydro or, or um, uh, other systems, um, that, uh, are not strictly renewable generation, um, as we're talking about it here, use offshore wind. Uh, now, more recently, starting to be offshore tide and other other kinds of um, opportunities that provide a different kind of baseload. And so um, I do think that there's a lot of other alternatives here, and there is a need to move away from, as I think Mauro characterized it, agencies being um, so overwhelmingly cautious, which I actually don't think is was the case um, when certainly when I worked in NOAA, you know, if an if a statement is inadequate, a judge will tell you so, and you go back and fix it. It's not like you start over. The, the remedy is to remand it back to the agency to do it better. And so there are lots of um, ways to move forward. And in fact, many EISs, I've seen terrible um, analyses, and I've seen really, really good analyses. I do think that most agencies tend to be overly conservative with regard to, you know, the risk that they might lose in court. But I, I don't actually think that the, the um, again, from my own practitioner experience, that that's the driving force. It's to try to make sure that issues are addressed and you've provided good information to the public. So um, I think that not only should we find uh, the ways to be more efficient and to move forward. Uh, but that's a necessity because we have absolutely no option but to uh, change our power system. And we have no option but to consider the communities while we do so. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, we'll get to audience questions in just a little bit, but I have a couple of questions of my own. If folks will bear with me first. Uh, so far, the conversation has focused mostly, uh, as NEPA normally does, on uh, Local impacts, right? If you're building a, a pipeline, what impact will it do to endangered species or other, or other species in the area? What impact will it be on rivers or streams that you're crossing? Um, but in the last 10 years, some of the most interesting and vexing questions have had to do with upstream and downstream impacts. So say, for example, natural gas pipeline, it gets a NEPA review because FERC is, is going to sign off or refuse to sign off on the project. And the D.C. Circuit other courts have really struggled, and FERC have really struggled with the extent to which the, the pipeline company and the agency should account for greenhouse gas emissions based on the use of the gas that's flown through the pipeline and also 
the extraction of the gas before it goes into the pipeline. I kind of wonder with clean energy infrastructure, if we're going to see similar fights in the next 10 years over the, the mining of the minerals needed for the, the infrastructure itself. I think just this week, the International Energy Agency put out a nearly 300-page report on, it was titled, the, the Role of Critical Minerals in Clean Energy Transitions. And I think this issue is getting more and more attention. And so I guess my question for, for Andrew and Mario is this. Um, in general, with, with NEPA review, how far should should the agencies and, the, and, and all parties involved look at the upstream and downstream impacts, such as the mining of the natural gas, the mining of the minerals for the, the wind the wind farm, uh, the, the wind turbines, and so on. Is there any way that we can sort of construct a process that, that gives some certainty about what exactly we're looking for? Um, maybe I'll give Andrew the chance to speak first, and then Mario. Yeah, I mean, in terms of upstream and downstream impacts, of course, climate change is the ultimate <laughs> downstream impact of of very many projects, whether they be agricultural or energy or or um, road building and so on. And so I don't think that there's any alternative but to consider um, upstream and downstream impacts uh, because that's the thing that's led to so many problems. I mean, I would say that most of the NEPA analyses are not focused on things like endangered species issues, which are dealt with under the endangered species analyses, but much more on things like um, you know, a, a overall impact on a community, overall landscape assessments, and so on. Of course, the endangered species issues are part of a NEPA analysis, but they have to be done anyway if you're doing a Section 7 consultation. And that's under the ESA, not under NEPA. And so, um, you know, cultural resources, as came up in pipelines, um, have become very important. I'm not sure if you'd consider either those upstream or downstream impacts, but they certainly are very important. And of course, the consequence of ignoring those things has been um, dramatic, particularly, again, in vulnerable communities, communities of color, indigenous communities, and so on. Um, it's not a, not a surprise that many, many um, uh, historically black neighborhoods were affected by road building, particularly the National Highway uh, Program. In terms of the upstream impacts of things like minerals, yeah, I think we will have to confront that for renewables, and I think we should. Because there are real concerns there if we simply said, well, we're not going to worry about that. Well, that's repeating a bad history again of saying, well, we don't need to worry about where this stuff comes from. It's perfectly okay. To the extent that dictates the decision, which NEPA doesn't do, um, is another question. And whether you have to do a unique analysis of the upstream impacts for every single NEPA statement, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because they're not going to be different. It's not like you're going to your local, you know, mine to get the rare minerals. They're all coming from international sources, whether they be in Greenland or in Africa or, or Southeast Asia. So why not do that analysis that would suffice for essentially any of the projects that are using those um, uh, minerals and provide that information to the public? Mario, what do you think? I mean, maybe another way to phrase the question would be, I mean, just focusing on this question of, of minerals that Andrew ended on and I started with, uh, should the Biden administration consider doing some kind of programmatic uh, environmental impact statement, you know, on the, the impacts of, of mining these rare earths in Africa or Asia or New Zealand elsewhere um, before they proceed with signing off on individual wind farms? Or is there a way to deal with this on a case-by-case -case basis? 
So I think you, this is a very, very important issue that occupied a lot of uh, our time at the White House when we were looking at ways to reform the process. There was a very important case handed down in the D.C. Circuit that I think you're referring to, the Sable Trail case, Duke Energy versus FERC, that came down in August of 2017. Uh, and the, that case looked at um, what downstream and upstream impacts a, uh, for example, a pipeline project has to consider, and by downstream is meant not impacts along the route of the pipeline, but rather this this federally permitted pipeline is, in the case of Sable Trail, is delivering natural gas to a power plant in Florida that's regulated by Florida state regulators. And we don't know what, you know, FERC doesn't know whether that power plant is going to, it's a mixed uh, cycle, it's going to use coal or natural gas or whatever. And so they don't know how much of the natural gas is going to be burned, but they know that some amount of carbon emissions will result. Uh, and does FERC need to need to make predictions about what this entity regulated by Florida state regulators is going to do with the gas that's being shipped in the pipeline? And there's a general consensus that uh, that there has to be some kind of limiting principle on the downstream and upstream effects that agencies have to regulate. Uh, especially where the agency, where the particular action that the agency is studying for NEPA purposes, the granting of a permit for a specific pipeline, would be only a negligible or immeasurable uh, contribution, uh, non-measurable contribution to a global impact like climate change. I think this highlights something that's a very important aspect um, of environmental policy that NEPA is not actually well designed to address, which is what are the national policy level implications of a sector-wide commitment to a particular kind of energy, for example? That can come up when you're permitting a pipeline, but it, let's say that FERC was to deny or grant a permit on the basis of infinitesimally small climate change impacts of a particular pipeline. That denial of a permit could be vacated by a court for considering factors that Congress didn't intend to consider. And so remember the butterfly effect. I mean, you have very small contributions in the aggregate. Those impacts can be significant, but individually they're very small uh, remember that NEPA only applies to the specific permit that's being granted, and those permits have their own criteria, their own statutory criteria, uh, and those are the ones that have to govern the NEPA analysis. And so where there are sector-wide implications like this, you sometimes you can deal with it with a programmatic impact statement, although if you have significant effects under a programmatic impact statement, again, the courts may require that you do a site-specific analysis at that point. Uh, but, you know, NEPA should serve a second function that, pe that is not discussed enough, which is to highlight these national level policy implications for policymakers, even when they aren't relevant to the grant or denial of a particular permit. Uh, and so I think uh, for that purposes, a Supreme Court's decision in public citizen versus Department of Transportation uh, was an important step in the right direction in terms of saying you know, the agency has to be at least legally responsible for the significant effect uh, in order to have to take that significant effect into account under NEPA. This is sort of like a proximate causation analysis, uh, as Justice Thomas mentioned in Public Citizen. And I would expect now with several, with another, um, Justice Kavanaugh is also a NEPA expert coming from the D.C. Circuit. Uh, and I think with several NEPA experts now on the Supreme Court, we could see uh, further decisions along the lines of public citizen uh, 
uh, which will likely tend to limit the upstream and downstream effects that um, that agencies have to take into account when granting these actions. And I should also point out one other detail, which is a pet peeve of mine. Uh, NEPA does not require agencies to study alternatives to the proposed project. NEPA requires agencies to study alternatives to the agency action. And the agency action in the case of a permit application is to grant or deny the permit. And so agencies often conflate the purpose of the agency action with the purpose of the project. And then they start studying the project proponents alternatives. And that's a big waste of time and it's not appropriate. Uh, it's not required under NEPA and it's not appropriate for agencies to be getting involved in the strategic and management decisions of project proponents. So I hope that answers your question. Can I just say one thing about that, Adam? Sure, I figured you might have a thought on that one. Well, just on that last point, I don't think that the only two alternatives and Mario, legally, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to play lawyer here, but the the only two alternatives are issue the permit or deny it. There also are permit conditions, and those provide extensive alternatives of how things are done and where they're done and what the requirements will be. So it's not a issue or not issue kind of question. In fact, normal notice and comment is, you know, we're going to do this and you can comment on it if you like, and then we're going to decide whether we do it or not. But underneath, but there still are alternatives, even when it's a permit decision on the agency. The agency action is a permit decision. Yeah. I, so let me just respond quickly to that, if I may. If yeah, real the, quick, and then we'll go on to audience yeah. questions. If the, if the agency, the agency sometimes is required to study alternatives to the project beyond the denial or grant of the permit. But if it has to do that, it's because of the action statute. Uh, the Clean Water Act permit may require the agency to find the least environmentally damaging practical alternative. The FERC permit is a, is a certificate of public necessity and convenience. So the point is, NEPA does not require the study of alternatives beyond the agency's alternatives. But the, but the permit statute, the permitting statute may require the agency to study those alternatives. Anyway, it's just a pet peeve of mine. No need to, no need to take any more time with it. Well, and by the way, I noticed as we're talking about mining, there's an item in the Q&A from Steve Gunderson, who's uh, a representative in the Montana State Legislature, uh, indicating that some mining projects in northwestern uh, Montana have been in the permitting process, I don't know if that's federal or state, um, for three decades for one and over 15 uh, years for, for another. And, and so he, too, reiterated the question of how NEPA is going to grapple with these issues of critical minerals. Now, I'll just one observation before we go up to audience questions. If I had, if I had um, taken another question of my own, I would have asked, and I guess I'll just throw it out rhetorically, the question about just the uncertainty of the process. I mean, I think NEPA is incredibly important. I once wrote a paper about it titled Thinking About the Practically Unthinkable. I think it's really important to force companies uh, and communities and, and government to think hard about the foreseeable or even unforeseeable impacts of their projects. At the same time, as a lawyer in these issues, uh, on these matters, the process oftentimes does seem so indeterminate. And I've grappled for years thinking about what sort of statutory reforms might streamline the process, uh, whether deadlines would work. I don't think they would actually for reasons I've written about but won't get into here. And uh, that's that's what I think is the most challenging uh, aspects of these issues. But speaking of streamlining the, per the uh, process, there's a question from Susan Bodine. She is a veteran of both the EPA and the Senate uh, Committee on Environment and Public Works. She asked about uh, the FAST 41 process. And just for those who don't know, FAST 41 is a statute that was passed about five years ago. It's short for Fixing America's Surface Transportation Act. Uh, it was a, a, 
an attempt to streamline this interagency process, creating a, a permanent dashboard for each project, if I remember correctly. And I'm just curious whether Mario and Andrew, have, if they know anything about how Fast 41 played out, I don't presume that either of them worked on the issue. Um, but if they have, I'd, be, I'd love to hear their thoughts too. I worked very, very intensively with Fast 41 implementation. Uh, the permitting council that it set up and the permitting dashboard uh, are models for, uh, you know, we built on, those are Obama era laws that we built on in the Trump administration uh, to scale those up. And many of these uh, significant reforms start as, you know, smaller Department of Transportation type pilot programs that then get built on and generalized to others, other sectors. Uh, the Fast 41 process is a very important process that has uh, been able to provide a lot of transparency uh, for major infrastructure projects that are covered uh, under Fast 41. I would say the one, I would say that, that uh, Congress is probably looking at ways to strengthen it and it should be strengthened. One key way that it should be strengthened is to make the executive director of the permitting council uh, a White House appointee so that the, who can exercise delegated presidential directive authority and tell agencies to do this or that because without that, the permitting council is simply an advisory uh, body, but some kind of unified one-stop shop for permits. Uh, and, and I'll just go out. I mean, the general idea is to increase the project. The general idea of this sort of reform proposal is to increase the project proponent's control of the clock and uh, and to be able to spend resources of its own in order to move the process forward while reducing the agency's discretion to just make the entire thing indeterminate and drag it out for years and years and years. And so all the reform proposals along those lines, I think, are worth considering. And FAST 41 is a very important step in the right direction. Andrew, is this anything you've, you've been involved in since you're... Um, so you're I have not been involved in FAST 41, so I defer to the questioner and to Mario on the details. I would say that anything that improves interagency process, I'm in favor of, because there's an awful lot of delay um, in interagency process and responsiveness. Um, and in terms of, you know, greater control for the, the a project applicant, as long as we appropriately deal with conflicts of interest, then um, I don't have any opposition in principle, but I don't know the details of the specific statute. But the interagency process is, a, this is not only true for NEPA, by the way, this is true for, you know, Clean Water Act consultations, endangered species consultations, and et cetera. Interagency process tends to be a real problematic area that slows things down um, because of it, because of the lack of clarity on when it will conclude, how much resources will we put in it, who will pay for it, all of those kinds of things. That's a great description of everything the federal government does, by the way, Andrew. Thank you for that. Well, not quite, but. <laughs> but yes, a lot of things. Yeah. One person who knows a lot about interagency processes is Richard Belzer, formerly of the Office of Management Budget. And he has a question, which I think Mario alluded to at one point. Um, he, Richard writes in the Q&A, there's a simple solution, statutorily exempt these projects from NEPA. And he asks, would this be politically difficult? Uh, he says, would it would a carve out for these things, the, the Green New Deal, as he, he refers to, would it be hypocritical? Um, I guess just more broadly, I'd be curious to hear both of the speaker's thoughts. Isn't there a place perhaps for Congress to make overarching judgments about the trade-offs in terms of 
global impacts, local impacts, global benefits, um, uh, the, the, the choices we're going to have to make in terms of, of upgrading or changing our power grid and the cost of, of process overall. Would it be a bad thing for Congress to, to just carve out certain pro- certain kinds of projects, whether it's wind, uh, wind, hydro, nuclear, solar, anything? Um, or should we stick with the, the sort of the case by case review? Uh, Andrew? Well, I mean, Congress, whether it's politically viable or not, I think is, is a tough question. And I'm not, I would guess the answer is it would be very difficult politically, but I don't know. Um, the reason that's a problem and the reason the overall discussion is a problem is that people either say, well, we don't do any of these things like consult with communities consider the broader impacts, consider, you know, justice and equity implications, or we do them as if that's a dichotomy. And the idea of just not worrying about all that stuff, well, we tried that. It was a long period before NEPA. And that's exactly why we have something like NEPA. That's exactly why states have NEPA and so on, because it resulted in huge numbers of problems. So I don't think that the remedy is to is some broad-scale exemption. Is there a, a place for programmatic permitting or congressional action? Yes, there probably is, but that congressional action has to consider both upstream and downstream concerns. So, for example, offshore wind, you could well imagine that there would be um, congressional you know, action that could deal with a lot of aspects of offshore wind. But is anyone going to go to the community on Martha's Vineyard of very wealthy people, um, including, you know, everybody from the cooks to the Kennedys and, um, and and tell them we don't really care what you think about this? No, they're not. And so, um, but there's an obvious one where the, you know, the community impacts are far less than, you know, uh, what you might do in many other, commu- you know, a poor community or on a tribal reservation or something with a large scale project. But nobody would be willing to give up their their voice in that case because it's, you know, uh, a, a wealthy community of influential people. So there aren't really very many proposed alternatives, and and Congress could take action that would possibly improve the process. But that's not what the proposals have been. They've been much like the question: either get rid of it altogether or don't get rid of it at all. And that's where we're stuck in our political debate on everything from endangered species to NEPA to clean air to clean water. That's why we don't move very far because everybody goes to the extremes. And Andrew, just, uh, yeah, a quick word on that. I did, I did, I did try to answer that specific question earlier in the talk. And I mean, to, to vote to exempt a sector, an entire sector from NEPA is it would be very hard to find votes in Congress because every congressman who would be voting or senator would be voting to cut their constituents out of being able to express local concerns in a statute that is very, very effective in uh, channeling local concerns to the highest levels of agency decision making. Now, that what that points Congress towards is not exempting sectors from the NEPA process, but rather establishing expedited procedures for particular sectors. FAST 41 is an example of that, which is an exp- expedited procedures originally for, for the transportation sector uh, and then for big covered projects. Of course, if you, try, if you propose to establish an expedited procedure for solar or wind, 
uh, the people that you're negotiating with in the horse trading in Congress will say, well, what about my, what about mines? What about this? And in order to get votes for an expedited procedure, you might have to generalize it to other projects. Uh, and so I think that that's where a lot of the horse trading is likely to happen. But I think that we've given the audience a really good sense of some of the political tectonic plates that are in play when you try to uh, institute any kind of expedited procedure for permits and environmental reviews under NEPA. We only have five minutes left. So let me ask one last question, but also give both speakers as they answer the question or don't answer the question, the opportunity to offer their closing remarks. The first question we received uh, during the, the webinar was from Vedic Dash Putre. He's a student here at Scalia Law. And he asks whether designating greenhouse gas emissions as criteria pollutants under the Clean Air Act, uh, and he says thus receiving uh, Clean Air Act-related exemptions to NEPA, would that cure some of the burdens associated with NEPA analyses, or would it create other administrative burdens? That's a pretty technical question, so let me broaden it a little bit and ask this. NEPA was enacted in 1970, so 50 years ago. Since then, we've had a lot of reform of both uh, statutes, uh, new, new environmental statutes, new regulatory programs under old environmental statutes, and we've also seen major reforms of, of the implementation of the Administrative Procedure Act in the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court requiring agencies to go through a more wholesome process. And so I wonder if, you know, looking back now at, to 1970, this will be the last question, is, has the, has the, NEPA, the benefits of NEPA sort of been subsumed within the benefits of these administrative processes overall? And could we just protect the environment through these environmental statutes that are more targeted? and through the General Administrative Procedure Act and the processes in the agencies uh, without the, the, the old process of NEPA. Maybe I'll let uh, Andrew go first. And Andrew, if that gets pretty technical and legal, feel free to throw in your closing remarks as well, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go to Mario for the last sure. word. Um, the, the challenge with just saying, okay, well, the, the primary environmental statutes deal with all these issues is they don't. And one of the examples of that that is probably most... I've already mentioned several times is issues of justice and equity. And the existing statutes don't provide clear enough mandate. And the reason that you know that is because you still have communities that have an unbelievably large share of the burden of environmental insult um, from uh, multiple sources and cumulative impacts. And so I, I don't think we could simply say NEPA has been subsumed because we have a strong enough environmental framework. Of course, many of the statutes are of exactly the same era. Uh, most of our environmental statutes are from the Nixon administration in exactly the same era. And yes, they have been updated through time, but the fundamental structure is still from that same period of time. And then we get to the political problem that was just mentioned. The reason it's so difficult to open these things up and haven't, you know, most of them haven't been opened in, uh, uh, significantly in years now, uh, decades really, is because uh, of the increasing polarization of viewpoints of everything from get rid of it all um, or leave it all to the states to, you know, it needs to be much more, uh, much stronger and heavy handed. The extent to which uh, making gre um, greenhouse gases, which would have to be all of them, I guess, criteria pollutants. Yeah. Um, and real quick, so I want to give Mario a chance to jump in the last 60 seconds. Okay, go ahead. Oh, thanks. Well, Andrew, thank, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, thank you so much for all your contributions to the discussion. Uh, Mario, uh, you have 60 seconds. Uh, 
Can, do you have any closing thoughts, either in response to my question or in general? Yeah, so I'll just respond real quick on the on the idea of regulating greenhouse gases as criteria pollutants. I think um, the administration has n- appears to have no interest in taking that route, uh, maybe because setting NACs for greenhouse gases would put the entire country in non-attainment until like the next ice age uh, and would have lots of economic effects in the meantime. I think that they are looking at a scaled down version of the clean power plan for the power sector to operate through states knowing that they've got a Supreme Court that's even uh, more uh, set against that kind of a scheme. So I think the administration is likely to be going to automobile emission standards as the main regulatory tool for regulating greenhouse gases. On NEPA and permits, I'll just say that I think that NEPA is a very good scheme and concept for integrating the agency's consideration of the various environmental regulations that you mentioned, Adam, uh, that otherwise would be sort of too dispersed in the agency's consideration. Um, but it's the process has become too hydra-headed. It's too many independent authorities doing independent studies. It leaves agencies with far too much discretion to, to delay the clock. And, uh, and, uh, and I think that we just need a, mo- a much more unified approach that is, mo- above all, more predictable. Because what the NEPA process right now is doing is creating, you know, Bolivian levels of risk for capital formation in a country whose rule of law should be uh, much more predictable than that. Well, thanks, Mario, for all your contributions to the discussion. Uh, we're at one o'clock. This will bring it to an end. I just want to say the Gray Center, this is an issue that my own Gray Center is taking a lot of interest in and we'll be working on in the years ahead. But I want to thank most of all the Law and Economics Center for organizing this event, hosting it today and bringing all of you together. Please stay on the lookout for future events from both the LEC and the Grace Center. And we're adjourned.